Beautiful prayer. Thank y'all. We were getting ready right before our singing started, and uh, we're back in the Darcy's office, and Shane was getting everybody together, and he was listing off the six guys that would be up here serving communion, and and, uh, Adam Adam said, oh, the good-looking guys, right? That's who gets up front is all the good-looking guys. And at at the time, I agreed. And then when you guys got up here, I was like, no, Adam was wrong. But uh, (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. This is a beautiful place to be. I I mean, it really is. Uh, Getting to serve communion, uh, watching you guys serve each other, and and just seeing, I I just had this feeling as we were communing just a moment ago of of blessing and uh, thinking about not only as we commune today and, and, and as Cody goes back to Scotland, we'll be communing with her every week through that. I don't know how it works, but the body is communing together all across the world, isn't it? It's beautiful. And then thinking about this morning, uh, Matthew and Lindsay being here and getting to celebrate uh, what they're about to do together and be married and, and union. And it was it was like three weeks ago that Matthew was a senior in high school preaching up here with me. And I mean, that didn't even seem right. And now he's a coach. And and uh, it's just wonderful to see that. And then Brock Hedgecoke walked in this morning and it's Brock was in Amarillo and, and it told me last night at the wedding that he wanted to be here and it, uh, so bad, he thought he'd just drive over and just add a couple hours to his drive back to Albuquerque. And guys, that says something about our church. What a blessing it is to be part of a, a healthy and fruitful and loving church. And may we never forget that. In fact, we have a guest here today that, that somebody uh, sent him here that didn't even go to church. She was, she's looking for, she was like, tell me about a good church in Canadian. And, she's, and somebody that doesn't even go here said, go check out the Church of Christ. They do a good job. So I thought that was really cool. Really cool. So it was my senior year at Oklahoma State, and I was trying to finish up just my last little bit of finance classes. So I was in one of those capstone courses, and I was just doing my best to slug through it. I was planning on going to seminary. I wanted to go into ministry, but I had to finish out this last senior level banking and commercial bank, banking and finance class. And it was our third test of the semester, the one that was preceded just before finals week. And I felt so blessed that day because... Our professor told us on this third test, although it was going to be comprehensive, he said, you can bring a cheat sheet. You can bring a cheat sheet to this test if you want to, but all the only rule is it can only be a three-by-five card front and back. No more, no less, as if any of us would do less. But I was pumped because I wasn't really good at finance at that time. I, had a, I have a degree in it, but by that time, I really didn't care. I was ready to get married. I was engaged to Allison. I was ready to move on. I was ready to go start studying the Bible. And so I was fired up. And so I, 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 was, I went to Walmart and did everything I could to get ready for this test. I went and bought a package of three-by-five cards. I went and found the most expensive mechanical pencil I could find, an extra pack of lead inserts. I went back to my house, and I sat down, I'd made sure I had good lighting, and I got after it. I wrote in the tiniest of font you could ever think of. Today, I couldn't even read it. Most of us couldn't read it. I'm not even sure I could read it then, but I was writing in small about everything I could about the principles of finance. Everything. Equations, concepts, thoughts. I even in one corner of the of the cheat cheat code, cheat code, cheat card, I put down the publisher of the book, just in case he threw a curveball and asked us who published the, published the finance book. I had everything on there. It was the most incredible cheat sheet I could think of. So when test time came, it was on a Friday. I was so prepared, not because I was prepared. I wasn't prepared. My cheat sheet was prepared. 
So I zipped my little cheat sheet up in my backpack and I headed off to class. As everyone sat down before class started, before the test was handed out, everybody was comparing cards. I pulled mine out and I thought, I've got this in the bag. Don't these people know you can write in such a way that you need a microscope to read it? Mine was so detailed. Well, the test was handed out and I scanned it over. I had my cheat sheet right here by my right arm. And then to my surprise, I answered the first question without ever even glancing at the cheat sheet. I thought, man. Then I went to number two, same thing. Then number three, four, five, and six, on down through all 35 questions on this capstone type test that was comprehensive through the semester. I never even looked at my cheat sheet. Not once. I rolled through that thing and aced the test. And the reason was I didn't need to. And you probably know the moral of the story, right? If you've ever had a cheat sheet. By my being so diligent with understanding how to make a cheat sheet, I had, through osmosis, I guess, actually learned for the first time in my life, the material. (laughs) It hit me that day of, man, I should have studied this way my entire life. I had studied thoroughly for my test by thinking I was cheating more than I had any test in my college career. Maybe you have a similar experience. And I tell you this story today because as we open up a new summer series today called Jonah Man on the Run, a three by five card, a little cheat sheet has everything to do with this little page and a half prophetic book found near the end of your Old Testament. Jonah is a fun study. We're gonna have a blast this summer. It's about this wishy-washy running prophet. It sits as a page and a half near the end of your Old Testament, and it is an incredibly powerful book, possibly not even in the ways you've maybe thought. Jonah, although it is old, is still a well-known book in our culture, isn't it? But what we often know or what our culture, and maybe even what we think about the book, is really not what this little book is about. When we think of Jonah or our culture thinks of Jonah, we think of kids' books like this. I love this drawing. How do we draw a guy? Well, we just do a bubble. Or for Christians, we may not think of this. We may think if we grew up in the early 2000s, we may think of these guys, right? Jonah was a prophet, ooh, ooh, but he never really got it. Ooh, ooh. There you go, there you go. That's right. And these are the pirates who don't do anything. Great stuff by VeggieTales. But Jonah is so much more than that. I want to tell you two things about Jonah, but first of all is this. As we get into this book today, Jonah is God's three by five card. It is the summation for the entire Old Testament, and even in a lot of ways, as we'll see in weeks to come, it is a summation of the Jesus story. Jesus uses Jonah as a wink, wink, hint, hint to say, this is what's about to happen to me. So Jonah as this little book works as a cheat sheet for us to understand the entirety of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, of God's mission, and of God himself. And that's the first idea I want you to know as we get started today. And now the second idea as we get started is found in the first two verses of Jonah. Let's read those and see what happens This little book opens like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, 
go to thee, or it actually reads, go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up. It has risen. I have heard, or I have even, some, some scholars say that even I have smelled their wickedness, the way of their life, what they're doing, their wickedness of Nineveh. Nineveh has come up before me. And the second thing we need to know about Jonah is that the main character of this book is not Jonah. It's not a big fish. Those are co-stars. Nor is the main character the Ninevites or even the little worm that eats away his shade at the end of this book. The second thing we need to know is not only is Jonah a three-by-five card a cheat sheet for the entire Old Testament. The lead character is God. Or as we are going to tell or talk about him today, it's Yahweh. When you see in your Bibles a capital L-O-R-D, it is the proper name. God is a generic name. We call him God a lot. We're really just using a generic name. God has a name. And that lead character in Jonah shows up. His name is yod heh vod Yahweh. It's an incredible book about Yahweh. The supporting cast, of course, is Jonah, son of Amittai. This is a guy who shows up in other passages, actually just one, but he shows up in 2 Kings 14, 25. He's a prophet working during the time of Israel and Judah to King Jeroboam II, Jeroboam II. There's other co-stars of the big fish that works and serves not as a punishment for Jonah, but as a Vehicle of salvation through water for Jonah. The stories about Nineveh, yes, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This horrible, as you'll see probably next week as we describe Nineveh, this first empire of the ancient world outside of Egypt who comes and conquers Israel and Judah. A city that gets this title twice in scripture. That great city, Nineveh. It's a titled city, a described city. And we should pay attention when we hear that as we heard it in Jonah chapter one, verse two. There is something going on in Nineveh. Two times in the Bible that shows up. It's here in Jonah one, two, but it also shows up in the section of scripture in Genesis 10 called the table of nations when a man named Nimrod builds the city of Nineveh. And Nimrod is the template of rebellion against God in the Bible. And Nimrod was the builder of that great city, Nineveh, and the city called Babel, or Babylon. So there is a lot to this story, a lot going on with co-stars. But as you're going to see that the deep foundation of our summer series is all about understanding our main character, Yahweh. And by him, in the text, showing us a cheat sheet. You want to know who God is? And, and church family, if you've ever struggled with reading through the Old Testament, this is going to be a great series for you because Jonah is going to work as that cheat sheet. How do I read the Old Testament? Let me call to mind Jonah. So God is going to literally introduce himself to us. And he's going to give us a powerful and amazing and often even humorous introduction through this little book. But before we get back to Jonah, and we'll close with Jonah, let's talk about Yahweh. 
Let's let God introduce himself to us this morning or reintroduce himself to us. We can't think too much on God and we can't think too much about God. We can't ever figure God out or learn everything we can. We can't get God in a corner. So let's take a moment and reintroduce ourselves to Yahweh. See, if we closed our eyes, each of us, and simply answered, what do you think about when you think about God? There would be 200 plus different visions in here. Because everyone has a picture of God, don't we? Everyone, when we close our eyes and think about God, we have a description, not in just what we see, but who he is, his character and nature. And it doesn't matter if you're atheist or agnostic or Muslim or Jew or Christian, everyone has a picture. And I want to just spend a moment asking the question, but who really is God? Because the question is of dire importance. You've heard me say this before, but I want to keep saying it, not just for us to hear it, but for me. Because who I say God is, is the most important question I will ever answer. Because what I believe about God has so much to do with how I interact with the world and what I believe about myself. It has so much to do with my idea about God informs my actions. It informs my heart. It informs my priorities. I love this quote from A.W. Tozer. Great name, by the way, A.W. Tozer. Man, he was like born to be a theologian if your name's A.W. Tozer. Yeah. He said this, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a great mental image, isn't it? That we have this secret law of the soul of humanity that whatever we think about when we think about God is what draws us to what we actually become. So if we tend to think about a God as distant, that will inform who we come as pe become as people. Christians who believe in a distant God probably are pretty distant from their church or distant from a deep relationship with God. I've seen it over and over. The teens when I was in youth ministry who asked the most questions and were growing the fastest were those that were drawing near to God as God drew near to them. They were seeking. They weren't just assuming. And that's been true for adults as well. If you view God as a, as a coach, a life coach who's just there to say everything's good, you, you know, you're fine, you will become another type of person. Her name is Oprah. But anyway, you, you know, that's, that's what will happen in us. No matter what we think about God, you will be shaped by that idea and on and on. And what's cool about scripture is thankfully we don't have to look very far to let God introduce himself. Man, the New Testament, it's easy, right? God introduces himself in flesh. It's Jesus. He is the one who shows up. You want to know who God is? It's Jesus. But in the Old Testament, there is a passage where God directly introduces himself. He describes himself. It's in Exodus 34, if you want to turn over there in your Bible. We'll be there in here in just a second. But it's a passage where Moses is in this kind of back and forth with God, and God finally says, let me tell you who I am. If you'll remember what's happened in Exodus so far, just very quickly here, is God has rescued and redeemed the people of Israel from slavery. And he's brought them by Exodus 19 to Mount Sinai. And in Mount Sinai, he has 
said to them, you will be my people, a holy nation, a nation of priests, so that you can declare the glories of God to the world. And then if that was their introduction to covenant, they say, yes, we do. And they kind of marry God. It's, an, it's kind of a marriage ceremony. But after they marry God in Exodus 19, immediately after being given the terms of that marriage vows, which are called the Ten Commandments, they immediately go and break the first two. They set up a golden calf and they worship that golden calf. And what's so interesting about the passage is that when we get later on into Exodus 32, 33, and 34, the cries of the Israelites as they worship and do detestable things around this golden calf rise up to God's ears and he tells Moses, do you hear the cries of the people in the camp? And God has in mind that he might do something to the people. There might be some justice. And in that moment of justice, Moses says, where can we go without you, God? We cannot be led without you. And God says, you're right. I will go with you. I will go before you. And then in Exodus 34, 33 and 34, Moses has this great, great line. He's seeing this God who is so gracious, he can't even get his head around it. And he asks God, he says, show me your glory. And the passage we're gonna look at today is where God does. It's where Yahweh says, you wanna know who I am? Here is who I am. Moses is like, I wanna understand you more. Tell me about you. And then in Exodus 34, six and seven, what has happened is God takes Moses and says, you can't see my face because it'll be too much for you. You can't handle it. But I'm going to let my glory pass by you. And as his glory passes by, he describes himself. He says, hello, my name is Yahweh. And here's what he says. It's so beautiful. And he passed, he being Yahweh, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, see capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, this is the only place in scripture where God, outside of the New Testament, God directly describes himself. It's the only place in scripture. It's also the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. It's God's hello. It's succinct and powerful. One writer called it the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. I love that. It's 13 attributes of God that God breaks down and says, let me tell you about myself. It's a God, God's ability to be able to say, in light of what just happened, in light of what the Israelites just did and already broke covenant, I already broke the first two commands that I just gave to you. Here's who I am. And I want to shine a light on a couple of those attributes because these attributes are what Jonah is about. And there's two attributes, but there's actually three in the way read it, we read it. But the first two are a pair. And these first two attributes that God says about himself, sorry, I didn't give you all that, is he says, I'm compassionate and gracious. I can't say these words in Hebrew, but it's something like rahum kahin or hanaim, <laughs> I'm not sure how it's said. But it's a pair of words. 
that we translate very, very accurately, compassionate and gracious. And a lot of times they will show up together in the Bible. When God is being described, they almost always show up together. In Hebrew, they sound alike. They're almost a rhyme to them. They're mutually illuminating. These words shine a light on each other, meaning that they describe each other. To learn compassion is to be gracious. To be gracious is to be and feel compassionate. I love that. Let's just break it down for a second. The root word for the word compassion also shares the same root word for a mother's womb. And so the idea behind this word is God is saying, I am compassionate. I feel for you as a mom feels for her child, born and unborn. That's how connected I am with you. As in Psalm 103 and Isaiah 49, 15, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Or even more clearly in Isaiah 49, 15, God says through Isaiah about, can I give you up? And he says, never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if I, that were possible, I would not forget you. That is a beautiful picture of God. That he is Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious. Compassion like a mother. Even maybe if you take this literally from Isaiah, more than a mom, I would never forget you. And I think just one more thing on compassion. You know this about compassion. Compassion is a, a motive word, right? It's a feeling word. If I have compassion, I'm not just going, yeah, I have compassion for that. It's no, I, I am drawing near. I have, a, I have an emotive response to something. I want to do something. And that's why the next work completes the emotion. The next word, grace, completes that emotion. It's gracious and compassionate. Compassion and grace. If Compassion is a feeling word. Grace is the action that completes the emotion. I think for some of us, and myself included, grace has become an idea. But grace to God is an action. So as God has compassion like a parent, he then has grace because he does something about it. Y'all with me? That's the picture about Yahweh. This is why it's so important. If you've ever read Jonah or know the story or watched the VeggieTales movie, you know why this is so important. And then the second thing that comes up about God here that's important for Jonah is this other attribute of Yahweh. It's the Hebrew word hased, or probably in your Bible, most likely steadfast love or lasting love. It's the strongest word for love in Hebrew it is a character trait that means I will be moved to fulfill the obligations I have made. Love is not just something that I feel, but it is a duty. But more than a duty, it is an obligation that I take out of love and generosity and kindness. It shows up most of all in other texts like the book of Ruth. Ruth is moved with hased in Hebrew to say to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She's not even an Israelite. She's a Moabitess, right? And she goes 
to a whole other country. And then also in that little book of Ruth, there's so much truth there too. Boaz, when he sees two widows, Naomi and Ruth, in need of something, he's moved with Hesed to provide for them. It is a love that it goes beyond duty into and beyond obligation into generosity. Maybe most of all today, if you've ever known a couple who's been married a long time and maybe a terrible disease takes on or over one of their lives. Maybe it's Alzheimer's, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's something that's debilitating, ALS. And you see in that the man or the woman care for their spouse with getting nothing in return year, month after month and year after year. That's the idea of Hasid, that God has a lasting love, a steadfast love. And what he says is it lasts for a thousand generations. And before you take that literally and start to go, well, let me count that. Are we getting near the end of that? That's not the Hebrew idea. The Hebrew idea is forever. Yes, he has justice, but he has love for a thousand. And this is what Jonah is charting to get us to wrestle with when we get into the book. And I hate that this is just a setup lesson, but it is. This is the God of the Old Testament. It's the God who's revealed through Jesus Christ. But for us today, for us today in Jonah, there's some implications that are gonna come out of this that we're gonna try to get to. And I really just have one today. Because as we set this up and we get into this for the rest of the summer, this isn't a sermon about inspiring you to do something as much as it is for us to get set up to go, we want to understand this, God. I want to get to know. I want to pray that prayer of Moses and say, God, show me your glory. I want to know a God who is full of compassion and grace and love and who, yes, will have justice, but who defaults to compassion, grace, and love. So as we wrap up, I just have one thing I want to share with you. And it's an implication that we all need to be thinking about before we get into the book of Jonah. As we explore it this summer, we need to wrestle with this idea. And I got to admit, and the staff had to hear me whine. I hope it doesn't happen too much, but I whined all week about how wrestling with the end of this sermon, how to wrap this thing up. I couldn't, I couldn't come up with the words. And then I remembered a passage down at Brown Bag Roasters Thursday morning. It is a holy place oh, where something <laughs> happened. It is. It is for me anyway. And that major point of Jonah that I wanted to bring across, that I was wrestling with trying to say, actually, I remembered I didn't have to come up with something because Jesus already had. And Jesus sums up what Jonah's about and who God is in Luke chapter 6. Hear these words. Luke chapter 6, 35 and 36. And this is the message of Jonah. Jesus has just given us to it in a different way. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the most high. Don't forget that line. I wanna act like a child of the most high. So what do I do? Jesus says, you love your enemies. Why? Because God is kind to those who are ungrateful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Now underline that passage if you're in a written Bible or 
hold it on your thumb, on your on, underline it, star it, whatever you do. That is a landmark statement. Be merciful as your father is merciful. Be like your father, Yahweh. Because the implication here is this, and this is what is so powerful because this is what Jonah is trying to get across. The challenge of Jonah is going to ask one question that we have got to let it sink in. And it is as relevant today as it was in the eighth century BC. And I'll put it on the screen here. Because we know what Jonah does, right? He's gonna run. He's gonna be called to go talk to evil people, to enemies, to people that were oppressing him, to people that were even killing his countrymen. And Jesus picks up on this theme and the implication of Jonah that we're going to spell out through the rest of the summer is this, is what happens when the people called by God and graced by God refuse to be the people who share what they've received. Jonah is a call to imitate Yahweh, to be a child, to truly be a child of Yahweh. And we imitate what we worship. You reflect what you hold up as most important. So if God is compassionate, Jonah's going to say, you need to be compassionate too. Jonah's not going to say it. The book is. Jonah's never going to say it. <laughs> if God is gracious, the book's going to challenge us to be gracious. If God loves enemies, God is challenging us to love our enemies. If he's abounding in love and has said, then we in turn, be like his children. So I want you to wrestle with that this week. I want to. I want to wrestle with this. I want to kind of enter into this arena and spend time with the Lord this week and say, what happens, God, when I, who have been graced and forgiven of multitudes of sin, refuse to share what I received? Henry Nouwen said this about Luke 6, 36 in Jesus' words, and it sums up where we're heading the rest of the summer, and I will close with this. He said, God's compassion, who he is, Exodus 34, 2, is described by Jesus, not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to be compassionate for, to me or to forgive my sins, but it is there to invite me to become like God and show the same compassion to others as he has shown to me. If the only meaning of the story were that people sin but God forgives, I could easily begin to think of my sin as a fine occasion for God to show me his forgiveness. There would be no real challenge in such an idea or interpretation. Such sentimental romanticism is not the message of the Bible or the Gospels. And I would add, or Jonah. What I am called to make true is that whether I am younger or the older son of the Bible, it doesn't matter. I am the son of a compassionate father, and therefore I am an heir. I am destined to step into my father's place and offer to others the same compassion that he has offered me. Being in the Father's house requires that I make the Father's life my own and continually become transformed into his image. May it be so, church family. As we go this summer, we are going to be challenged to be children of God. Let us stand together and sing.